Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network Native American Studies podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Johnson, and I'm here today with Dr. Benjamin Madley, uh, a professor of history at UCLA, to discuss his new book, An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873. The book has won a number of awards, uh, including the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for History, the Raphael Lemkin Book Award for the Institute for the uh, Study of Genocide, the Charles Red Phi Alpha Theta Award for the Best Book on the American West, the California Book Award Gold Medal, uh, and the Heyday Books History Award. In the book, Dr. Madley documents with extraordinary detail The genocide carried out against California Indians, which caused their population to drop from possibly 150,000 to 30,000 between 1846 and 1873. We start today's program with Dr. Madley reading from his book. Thank you, Matt, so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. So I wanted to begin our conversation by reading a little bit from the book and discussing what's at stake. Um, My contention is that the question of genocide in California calls for meticulous analysis because the stakes are so high, not only for scholars like the two of us, but also for California Indian people and, in fact, all U.S. citizens. So to begin, if U.S. citizens colonize some region of California, if not the state as a whole, in conjunction with deliberate attempts to annihilate California Indians, scholars will need to reevaluate current interpretive axioms, and address new questions. Scholars could, for example, re-examine the assumption that indirect effects of colonization, like the unwitting spread of diseases, were the only leading causes of death in most or all encounters between whites and California Indians, rather than mass murder or other deliberate acts like forced incarceration under lethal conditions. Exceptionalist interpretations of U.S. history, which suggest that the United States is fundamentally unlike other countries, also lose validity when researchers compare the California experience to other genocides and place it within global frameworks. A careful study of genocide in California will also assist scholars in re-examining the larger hemispheric indigenous population catastrophe and the question of genocide in other regions. Where scholars document a genocide, it will be necessary to evaluate what roles colonial, federal, state, or territorial governments or private individuals or groups played, as well as whether or not the event was part of a recurring regional or national pattern. Larger questions then follow. What tended to catalyze genocide? Who ordered and carried out the killing? Why do we not know more about these events? Did democracy drive mass murder and ultimately... What role did genocide play in making modern Canada, Mexico, the United States, or other Western Hemisphere countries? Now, given the political, economic, psychological, and human health ramifications of the genocide question, it is urgent for California's approximately 150,000 people of California Indian ancestry. Should they press for official government apologies? 
apologies, reparations and control of land where genocidal events took place. Should tribes marshal evidence of genocide in cases involving tribal sovereignty and federal recognition? How should California Indian communities commemorate victims of mass murder while also emphasizing successful accommodation, resistance, survival, and cultural renewal? The psychological issues related to genocide are also fraught. What happens if a tribal member learns that she is a descendant of both perpetrators and victims? How might California Indian people reconcile increased knowledge of genocide, sometimes at the hands of the United States, where there often intense patriotism? Finally, what role might acknowledgement of genocide have on the intergenerational historical trauma prevalent in many California Indian communities? And that trauma's connection to present-day physical illnesses, substance abuse, domestic violence, and suicide. The question of genocide in California under U.S. rule also poses explosive political, economic, educational, and psychological questions for everyone in the United States. And acknowledgement and reparations are central issues. Should elected government officials tender public apologies, as Presidents Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush did in the 1980s, for the forcible relocation and internment of some 120,000 Japanese Americans, many of them Californians, during the Second World War? Reparations constitute an important subordinate issue. Should federal officials offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion Congress paid out to Japanese Americans and their heirs? Might California officials decrease their cut of California Indians over $7 billion a year in annual gaming revenues as a way of paying reparations for the state government's past involvement in genocide? Might Californians reevaluate their relationship with California Indian gaming in general in light of increased awareness of the California genocide? A better understanding of the genocide that took place here in California might also affect the federal government's dealings with the scores of California Indian tribal nations currently seeking formal federal recognition. The question of commemoration then is closely linked. Will non-Indian citizens support or tolerate the public commemoration of mass murders committed by some of the state's forefathers with the same kinds of monuments, museums, and state legislated days of remembrance that today commemorate the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust? Will genocides against California Indians be included in public school curricula and public discourse along with other systematic mass murders? All of these questions are important, but can only be addressed in limited ways without a comprehensive understanding of relations between California Indians and newcomers during the California Indian catastrophe of 1846 to 1873. Thank you, Dr. Matt. I'm glad that you chose that passage from the book because it really gets to what's at stake. Uh, in this book, and my understanding is that the uh, this book has already led to something pretty significant, and that the governor has done something unprecedented recently. Right. One of the things that has been really amazing to me about this book has been its widespread public impact, um, not only in Indian country. Um, you know, it's been reviewed in a number of uh, publications, like News from Native California, and it was uh, on the Indian Country Today hot list, but also the impact that it's had in politics. And um, I was sitting meeting with a graduate student one day and I received a call and the woman on my phone's uh, little speaker said, this is 
the office of Governor Jerry Brown. Do you have time to speak to the governor? And um, and and so began a, a series of conversations between us. Uh, he began reading his book, and eventually he brought me up to the state capitol where I presented uh, to him and to his staff and to a number of his guests, including uh, about a half a dozen California Indian tribal chairman. And um, so what he's done that I think is quite unprecedented in United States history is he is the first governor to acknowledge that a genocide took place uh, in their state. And he has called what happened in California an actual genocide uh, based on the evidence presented in this book. Uh, the other things that are happening that I, I think are, are very heartening is some serious conversations about reforming and modifying California's state educational standards in order to include more material about the history and culture of this state's original people, California Indians. I mean, when you started this book, did you ever think the governor of California was going to pick it up? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. But it was very clear to me through my research methods that this would be a book that could have the possibility to help California Indian people to obtain some measure of historical justice. Obviously, we cannot bring back the dead. And so we cannot write these appalling wrongs. <laughs> and if you've lost a loved one, you know the magnitude of that loss, that rupture in your life, whether it's a, a grandparent or a partner or a child. And when I was working on this book, I made many visits to California Indian communities to present my work, to try to learn, uh, to have tribal elders and community members correct my errors. And also, um, they provided me with a great deal of information. But one of the things that I really realized was that it was very important to record every killing Mm -hmm. because there has been so much destruction of information. There's there's been a a huge cover-up over the years, I would say. So one of the things that I felt people were telling me again and again was to explain that this was an invasion, to be clear that this was a genocide, and to try to preserve as much information as possible. So if you look at the back of the book, there are almost 200 pages of appendices in Mm -hmm. hardback edition. And the inspiration from that came in part from slowly digesting what it was a learning in all of the presentations I was making at California Indian reservations and rancherias. But I also literally had this moment as a graduate student where I bumped into a wall, a, a white marble plinth in a rotunda at Yale. And I saw, you know, I looked up from, from my, from being deep in thought and saw the names of all of these Yale men and women who had fallen in wars since the, early 18th century, and I thought all of a sudden, I need to try to create something like that for California Indian people. And perhaps there will be no equivalent to Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial. Mm-hmm. But this is part of addressing trauma. This is part of making real what happened and helping people to understand that we need to call this catastrophe by its proper name, genocide. This was a state-sponsored project carefully orchestrated 
to physically annihilate California's indigenous peoples. It's, it's nothing less than that. And so when you, when you begin to understand it that way, it's very important to frame this um, in its proper light and not to hide behind phrases like ethnic cleansing or just settler colonialism. It's, mm-hmm. it's something much worse than that. And it, it's also a term that allows us to compare like catastrophes across time and space, uh, which is revealing. And we want to understand genocide, I think, as human beings as a phenomenon. We want to be able to detect it early. And one of the things that I've realized from working on this book for 10 years is that there is no safe level of racism. It's a very quick, slippery slope from racial epithets and slurs to violence. And it can snowball very rapidly into genocide. We also want to understand that there are people who stand up against this and how, how do upstanders stop something like genocide from happening? Yeah, at at and, what point, uh, sorry, Benjamin, but at what point as you're, you're researching this or early in the process, did you, um, you know, start to think about that this really was a genocide? I mean, at what point was it early on? Did it take a while as you're starting to document these killings? When, when did you choose that term? I grew up in Indian country um, in my early years, so I knew Karuk and Shasta and Iraq people, uh, and I had a pretty strong sense early on that certainly in far northwestern California, genocide took place, and, and there have been books written about it. But it took a while to understand that this was a statewide process. You know, I think it was realizing that state legislators had established a state-sponsored killing machine. That was what drove it home. Mm -hmm. And when I got into those archival records, I realized that California governors had called out or authorized no fewer than 24 separate state militia expeditions against Indians between 1850 and 1861. And just looking at those primary source documents, their own records, I quickly realized that those state militia expeditions had killed at least 1,340 California Indians. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that these weren't just rogue operators. State legislators passed three separate bills in the 1850s that raised up to $1.5 million to fund these operations. And that's a huge amount of money at the time, by far the single largest line item every year in California's budget in the 1850s um, is, is, is dealing with paying back these loans and paying bondholders. And the other thing that was really important to me was to understand that the state passed a whole series of laws that made it explicitly clear to would-be Indian killers that the state was not going to punish them. And the militias demonstrated that the state would reward people for killing Indians. And that, in turn, inspired vigilantes to murder at least, by my count, 6,400 California Indian people during these years, and probably many more. But then adding to that was to understand the federal government's role. First of all, you know, the U.S. Army and their auxiliaries killed at least 1,680 California Indians during these years. And beyond that, Congress actually refunded the state of California most of the money that it had spent. But then... You know, so all of that, I thought, well, maybe this is 
this, this is structural, but there's also, you know, some pretty clear statements of genocidal intent, or if, if there, there are statements that are very thinly veiled. So, for example, in 1851, California's first democratically elected governor, a man named Peter Burnett, declared, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. Mm. And the very next year, United States Senator John Weller, representing California, who became California's governor in 1858, went even further. He told his fellow senators in Washington, D.C., that California Indians, quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man, end quote. And he, he literally argued publicly, and I quote, that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. So beyond beyond these you know two major state leaders, we have quite explicitly genocidal intent being articulated by, for example, William C. Kibbe, the man who is in charge of California's state militias during these years. Oh, we have legislators in uh, California's state legislator legislature calling for extermination. And one of the things that um, people often remark to me on about the book is how frequently people are writing about extermination, wars of annihilation, extirpation programs in their letters, in their journals, and especially newspaper editors are constantly talking about this. So th- those were sort of the things that really made me feel very confident that this was a state-sponsored genocide um, like the British destruction of Tasmanian aborigines in Australia in the early 19th century or like the German colonial destruction of Nama and Herero people in German Southwest Africa, what's now Namibia. Um, And while I would never go so far to say as there's a one-to-one correlation between genocides because each genocide is unique and different. There are broad patterns that we can see. So, for example, another thing that, that really caught my attention was that there were a whole series of laws put in place that made genocide possible. So, for example, you know, we often think about the Holocaust as the canonical genocide. And scholars have spent a great deal of time studying not only the famous Nuremberg laws, but the many other hundreds of German laws passed that stripped Jews and Roma and Sinti and Slavic descended peoples of protection and and all of the rights of citizenship. And that's what happened in California. So when California's first legislature convened in 1850, one of their very first orders of business was to ban all Indians from voting, bar those with one half of Indian blood or more from giving evidence for or against whites in criminal cases, and then denying all Indians the right to serve as jurors. Soon thereafter, they also banned Indians from serving as attorneys and therefore also as judges. So as in some other genocides, this combination of laws largely shut Indians out of participation in and also crucially protection by the state legal system. So what this amounted to was a virtual grant of impunity to those who attacked them. And I found almost no evidence of non-Indian people being punished by the judicial system for crimes against Indian people. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things about this book is that the people who are doing the killings are not all necessarily government actors. I mean, there's this decentralized, it looks to, on the surface very decentralized, right? Is that there, there's a diverse um, uh, group of actors in this book. And so you know, who, who's actually doing the, the killings in this book? So the most killings that I could document were done by vigilantes, mm-hmm. over 6,400 of them. Um, the second most lethal group is the U.S. Army, and the third most lethal group is the California state militias. So in total, I was able to document roughly 9,400 to 16,000 actual killings of California Indian people. And by contrast, there are very few uh, killings of non-Indians by Indians. There are some, um, but this was this was not a series of wars, as some historians would argue, nor was it something like ethnic cleansing. This was out-and-out genocide. So many of these non-Indian casualties were people who were killed by crossfire during massacres. By the way, there were over 370 separate massacres. So vigilantes did a lot of killing, but these 24 state militia operations were really very crucial because they set precedents. They made it clear to the non-Indian public that they could hunt and kill California Indian people with impunity and that they would be financially rewarded for it. People were paid very well for serving in the militias. You could make more sometimes hunting and killing women and children than you could uh, panning for gold. Uh, So we have a wide swath of society involved. We have U.S. Army generals who are graduates of some of the most elite universities in the country, like Princeton, for example. Um, There are also many European immigrants involved in this. They often turn up. um, Immigrants from Australia participate in mass murder, um, sometimes uh, immigrants from Mexico. And so it's really... uh, it's a really broad, broad group of people who are, who are doing the killing. But I also wanted to emphasize that there were certainly folks who knew that this was wrong, and they often stood up to say so. So everywhere where I found someone who was an upstander, who tried to protect the rights of California Indian people to live, um, I emphasize that. One of the stories that really sticks out for me is a story about a woman a white woman on a farm near Reading, and she heard a killing squad arrive on her farm, and they she could hear the shooting out in the barn as they were uh, killing some Yana Indian ranch hands that she employed. And so when they came into the house, she stood between herself and several Yana Indian women who were working with her in the kitchen, and she held up a quilt uh, between herself and the women, and she said, to the killers when they came into her kitchen. If you want to kill these women, you have to kill me and my unborn child as well. She was carrying a child. And so they chose not to do that. They went away, and her husband and another neighboring rancher um, took these women to safety uh, in a wagon. So there were people who stood up, but the unfortunate reality is that a strongly anti-Indian state legislature and a strongly anti-Indian United States Congress chose to make this happen. This was not simply uh, a series of crimes of omission. These were crimes of commission. 
the United States Army donated weapons to the state militias. The United States Congress paid for almost all of the militia operations, and they also paid for many United States Army operations during these years against California Indians. In fact, the last lethal Indian hunting operation doesn't conclude until 1873, and when four Modoc leaders surrendered at the end of that Modoc War, the United States Army tried them in a court-martial, hanged them, beheaded them, and then shipped their severed heads to the United States Army War College in Washington, D.C. So the federal government was heavily involved uh, in this genocide. And that's why I titled it An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. It's true that the state of California and its legislators were the primary architects of this genocide, but they never could have carried this out without all of the financial and military support of the United States Army. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you know this is certainly not a war as other historians ha- have called it. You know, what's at stake uh, in calling this uh, uh, calling this a war? What, what's been the utility for for other people who have said that this was a war? Well, let me correct myself. I would say it was a war and a genocide. Mm. Calling it a war is very convenient because it camouflages crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. It camouflages a very dark stain upon our state and national history. If you call something a war, it sounds legitimate. It sounds like a conflict between uh, adversaries who are perhaps evenly matched. It sounds like Uh, violence between martial forces. Much of the killing in this book is almost entirely of unarmed civilians. For example, multiple times during the U.S. Civil War, United States Army officers murdered substantial numbers of surrendered California Indian combatants. But in many cases, villages would be surrounded at night, attacked at dawn, And the killing was very indiscriminate. Um, And sometimes, you know, everybody was killed. So it's a a very painful um, history to contemplate because it's not about a Whiggish sense of United States history. It's about a very dark sense of United States history that certainly forced me to think very hard about our founding stories of who we are as a nation. Yeah. I want to step back for a second and just give listeners a sense of just the level of difficulty in writing this book, because, uh, you know, to reach the standard of genocide, there are a lot of things that you have to show. Um, and what's really fascinating about this book is just the amount of evidence that you mobilize to meet that standard. And so I was wondering if you could give listeners an idea of, um, what you have to show to be able to argue that, th- that this was a genocide. Okay. So that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, so I use a very particular definition of genocide. I wanted to be very specific. I'm using the 1948 United Nations Convention on the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide. It's one of the few things to pass unanimously through the UN General Assembly. And it's really, it is the defining international legal standard 
of what constitutes genocide. So for an international legal prosecutor to successfully convict a defendant of the crime of genocide, they have to prove two things. First, they have to prove beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt something called specific intent, and that is intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So that's the first half of what the prosecutor would have to prove. And the second thing that they have to prove uh, is that a crime was committed, one of five crimes, killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, uh, preventing births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So you need to nail down as a prosecutor the intent to destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And then you also have to nail down that these one of these um, five crimes was committed. Now, in California, it turns out that not only was intent routinely demonstrated in both word and in deed by uh, state and federal officials, but also we see all five of the genocidal acts having been committed. For example, killing members of the group occurred in scores of homicides, as I said before, over 370 separate massacres. Of course, causing serious bodily or mental harm took place quite routinely. Um, Rape was a major feature of this genocide, as it is in many other genocides. Uh, Conditions of life were inflicted, calculated to bring about physical destruction um, in acts such as the routine burning down of villages and the looting of food stores and the driving of survivors into inhospitable desert and alpine areas. And there were also measures imposed to prevent births within the group. For example, on federal Indian reservations in California, uh, malnutrition was a major problem, as was in some cases outright starvation. So levels of fecundity predictably drop when people don't eat, um, and the number of miscarriages and stillbirths increases. At Round Valley Reservation, for example, at, at its worst during the U.S. Civil War, the daily rations for working Round Valley Reservation Indian inmates plummeted to less than 200 calories per day, which is not sufficient to even support life, uh, let alone to uh, support a pregnancy and a successful delivery of a healthy child. And another thing that happened was that um, thousands of California Indian children were forcibly transferred from their group to another group. And there were a whole series of laws that allowed for the custodianship and the wardship of California Indian children um, or their indenture. And so one of the drivers behind massacres was often that slave raiders killed the adults in order to enslave the young people uh, and the children and um, made quite a bit of money selling them uh, in slave marts. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this was a, has been kind of a cover-up that you're, you're uncovering. Um, and with cover-ups, you know, often one of the problems is, is just finding evidence that it actually happened. How do you, how did you uncover this? What sort of sources, uh, did you uncover in this process? Well, here's the thing. I feel that in the 19th century, this was hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you read through newspapers of this time, the discussion of wars of extermination and extirpation and the, the regular 
steady drumbeat in most periodicals. It's also something that appears all the time in the correspondence from the state militias, in the United States Army correspondence, and you find it quite a bit in the journals of 49ers and ranchers, the people seeking to conquer and colonize uh, California. So in terms of the sources that I found the most useful, of course, the U.S. Army and militia sources were very important. But I also I looked at things like the Congressional Globe and was startled to find how openly uh, congressmen and senators in Washington, D.C. were talking about the problem of Indian slavery in California. The Office of Indian Affairs, which becomes the Bureau of Indian Affairs later, also had hundreds of documents that were extremely important because they demonstrated that the people in charge of the welfare of California Indians working for the federal government knew what was going on. And they sent back many warnings to Washington, D.C., explaining that if these policies continued, there was the possibility that California Indians would literally be exterminated. Newspapers also were very important. I read many different newspapers, both from within and beyond California, because I wanted to get some sense of how outsiders were looking at this. And the, the bulk of my research was conducted at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. I spent a number of years immersed in those archives. But I also went to the California State Archives, the San Francisco Public Library, uh, Stanford, and a variety of smaller uh, regional archives as well. And um, oh, also the Beinecke Library at Yale. I did a lot of research there. And then I finished things off uh, with some research at Dartmouth College's libraries because I was a postdoctoral fellow there for two years. And at the very end, I continued to find things in the Young Library down here at UCLA. Yeah, you have, you have this short but but wonderful uh, conversation in the book about um, just the silencing of survivors uh, yes. afterwards, and, and you you know you face the the problem that that all scholars of uh, American Indian history face, which is just this kind of lack of sources that get to Indian voices. Um, but in your particular case, what happened to those survivors' voices? That's a great question, and I appreciate you asking it. So. I would say that a host of factors, overlapping factors, contributed to this dearth of written California Indian accounts. So first and foremost, there were not many survivors. Between 1846 and 1873, perhaps 80% of all California Indian people died. And many of these hundreds of massacres that are documented in the book left no survivors or only child survivors. So mass death silenced thousands of California Indian voices. But so too did these laws that I mentioned before and racist judges and racist juries. Mid-19th century California courts usually barred and rarely recorded California Indian testimony against whites. Outside the legal system, there weren't a lot of 19th century writers who cared to record California Indians' words either. And in the face of ongoing legal discrimination and violence and intimidation. California Indian people who survived often hid their Indian identities and their traumatic memories of the genocide from outsiders. So a host of factors further limited that transmission of oral histories within California Indian communities. These include the traditional taboos against speaking of the dead in some communities, 
the loss of connection to the land where genocidal events took place due to the forced removal of whole tribal nations to federal Indian reservations, uh, systematic federal government suppression of indigenous languages. Um, you know, kids sent to federal boarding schools in California like Sherman would have their mouths washed out, so or worse, if they were caught speaking their indigenous language. And large numbers of California Indian miners were placed in non-Indian homes. In addition, compulsory federal Indian boarding schools really worked hard to sever the transmission of oral history through intergenerational contact because kids were taken for long periods of time uh, away from their communities. And finally, there were legal prohibitions against many different California Indian religious and cultural gatherings that further limited the transmission of oral histories. And those things really only abate with the 1968 Indian Civil Rights Act and the 1978 American Indian Religious Freedom Act. So despite all of these obstacles, this book does contain quite a few written California Indian recollections of these events. And I think they're very important. They are in this book as testaments to both horrific atrocities and heroic defiance. Reading some of the um, responses to this book, you know, a lot of historians have, have loved the book but questioned your use of genocide. And did you, did you, when you, when you, you know, frame this book in terms of genocide, did you expect some pushback uh, from historians? Are you, are you, or have you been surprised? Um, well, I think the pushback that I've received has been pretty minimal. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I can think of uh, the review in the New York Times gave me some pushback uh, on this being genocide, but. By and large, uh, you know, the people who know American Indian history and know California Indian history, uh, people like Richard White, who reviewed this book in The Nation, have been very supportive um, because I think the evidence presented is, I think it's overwhelming. It's really hard to look at this evidence and to conclude as, for example, historian Gary Clayton Anderson did in 2014, that genocide did not occur in America. Um, I think once you look at the material in this book, it's very, very difficult to agree with such a position, given how explicit the genocidal intent is and how explicit the genocidal crimes are. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I think, you know, there had been a leaning before this book towards thinking about the genocide in California perhaps as a series of crimes of omission, mm. uh, that these were carried out by rogue operators and that the state just turned a blind eye. But it's really much more than that. You know, the state was quite directly involved in most of the killing that took place, arming the killers, uh, allowing them to carry out their crimes of impunity, paying them after the fact. And of course, the U.S. Army is you know, directly controlled by Congress. They decide whether or not the U.S. Army gets funded and whether or not people are promoted. And U.S. Army officers involved in massacres of California Indians are consistently promoted during this period. They Massacres are directly rewarded by promotion. And, and you get to, I mean, the, the, this word, the, the killing machine, uh, is, is, is such a, a term that comes up, uh, up in this book that you, you know, you never let the reader escape, um, from the state. 
uh, and its role in this? Well, I think it really is. Um, it really is something that demonstrates how genocide is not a late modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, the the genocide in Rwanda really pushed that home to me as um, as a young person. Here's a massive killing of hundreds of thousands of people, with the killing primarily carried out with machetes. Uh, not machine guns, not gas vans, not um, bombers, but machetes. And I think we can see here in this story how most of the killing doesn't involve trains, doesn't involve telegraphs. It's people on foot and on horseback uh, using non-repeating weapons, uh, often using rocks and hatchets and butcher knives. It's, it's not a technologically highly sophisticated killing apparatus, but it is bureaucratically very centrally controlled and paid for by the state. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes more and more machine-like. They work to perfect the killing machine. For example, William C. Kibbe writes a tactical manual on light infantry and light cavalry tactics and distributes it to his officers. And the very year that he does that, uh, Jefferson Davis, who is then the Secretary of War, this is before he becomes president of the Confederacy, he sends a crate of U.S. Army military tactical manuals to be distributed among militia officers. And it's also important to understand, as it being a machine and bureaucratically centrally controlled, none of those 24 militia operations could go out and do what they did without a whole set of bureaucratic operations taking place. They had to post a bond with a local magistrate. They had to provide documentation of their officers and every enrolled man. They had to send that along with documents on the bond to the governor's office. And the governor himself had to personally authorize each operation. And then in its aftermath, to receive pay, that state militia unit had to be approved by the state legislature in order to receive the money. Meanwhile, the United States Army is donating hundreds and hundreds of weapons, thousands of rounds of ammunition to the state, and the governor is distributing those arms and ammunition to the state militia units. So they're not they're not just rogue operators, and it's very important that the militias are paid after the fact. It's after they submit a report explaining how many people they killed that they are paid. But it becomes a smoothly operating machine. The only inhibitor is how much money they can raise, and they go through the money very quickly. So the militia operations slow down only when one of two things happen. A, when they run out of money, or B, when the United States Army takes over and and becomes the primary state-sponsored killing apparatus. You know, one of the things that, that impresses me about this book is that it, it's clear in this book that you're very conscious of the impact that this book might have on California Indian communities. Um, and even even a concern that you write about early on that that you were concerned that this might have a negative effect and you should you needed to take this in, into account. And and I'm wondering, you know, and you also write that you presented this research um, to a number of these communities, how they responded to to this book and your research. Well, the response has been extremely positive. I've, um, I've made some presentations at California Indian rancherias and reservations. Um, 
I continue to receive invitations to make more presentations at California Indian communities. And I've been quite gratified to see the way in which people are using this material uh, in day-to-day educational activities, uh, in substance abuse prevention programs. Uh, The material has been used in grant applications to Indian Health Services uh, for work on historical trauma in Indian communities. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm an activist historian. I, I'm, I'm into this both for revealing uh, what happened in the past, but also because how the past echoes into our present shapes our lived reality. And it shapes many of the inequalities and injustices that pervade life in the United States today. And to me, the place, one of the places where the federal government is failing the most is in Indian country. We see the poorest counties in the United States are all squarely situated in or overlapping with United States federal Indian reservations. We see the highest rates of suicide in American Indian communities. We see the lowest life expectancy and the highest infant mortality rates among American Indian communities. And these ongoing injustices, these ongoing profound inequalities, they have their roots in a long history of injustice. And in California, one of the central aspects of that injustice is the fact that the state and federal governments between 1846 and 1873 worked quite explicitly to physically obliterate the indigenous peoples of this state. Now, you've uh, had a, uh, some ex- success with the governor recently with this book. What, what else do you hope that this book is going to accomplish? Well, I hope that we have a serious revisioning of the state educational standards for our public schools. If you hold out your arm and you extend it from your shoulder almost to the end of your fingertip is the many thousands of years, some believe since time immemorial, that California Indian people have inhabited these lands. And it's only the white at the very end of your fingernail that represents the tenure on this land of people descended from Africans, Europeans, and Asians. And yet, we have nothing right now in our state educational standards that addresses this much longer history or the incredibly diverse and rich heritage of indigenous California. This is a place with over 60 major tribes. There are 109 federally recognized tribes in California and over 70 California Indian tribal nations currently seeking federal recognition. And yet we don't talk about that in our state educational standards. Uh, Likewise, this is perhaps one of the most linguistically diverse places on earth. Some linguists say that there are over 100 indigenous languages spoken in California, and yet that long history of diversity and complexity is almost completely overlooked in the way that uh, the youth in California are taught in our public school system. Well, Dr. Madley, I hope many more people read this book. Uh, I'm glad that you wrote it. Thank you so much for being on this program with me today. Matthew, thank you very much for having me on. I very much appreciate it.